You're listening to Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. Last May, just as news was breaking that the government was separating migrant children from their parents, researchers from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai arrived at an immigration detention center near the border. Over the next two months, they interviewed more than 400 migrant mothers about their children's mental health. Did their kids seem happy? Were they having behavioral problems? And so forth. Their findings were published last month in the journal Social Science and Medicine. It's the first large empirical study to look at the mental health of children in U.S. immigration detention, and it raises important questions, including about the mental toll of the child separation policy. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by two co-authors of the study, Dr. Craig Katz and Priscilla Ajman. Dr. Katz is a psychiatrist at Mount Sinai and a co-director of the Mount Sinai Human Rights Program. Priscilla is a clinical research coordinator and a recent graduate of the Icon School of Medicine, where she studied public health. Now, this is a podcast about resilience, so why are we doing an episode about the study? Two reasons. First, no matter where you stand on immigration, I think we can all agree that the current crisis contains within it a massive resilience challenge. We're talking about millions of people fleeing their homes, thousands of children moving through federal custody, often alone. The sheer scale of it is hard to wrap your mind around. Which leads me to reason number two. If you're looking for resilient stories, examples of survival and sheer toughness, look no further. Migrants are some of the most resilient people you will ever meet. In the conversation that follows, Priscilla and Dr. Katz talk about what it was like to visit this particular detention center, what they found, and what it means for all of us. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Katz, can you start off by talking a little bit about the uh, human rights program and what it does here at Mount Sinai? Yeah, Mount Sinai has had a longstanding involvement doing human rights work, and the clinic goes back in different incarnations a number of years now. Uh, And our main focus is on providing asylum evaluations for asylum seekers. Um, And that mission is really driven by the understanding even the evidence that if you have a medical professional who has written an, an affidavit that's that in support of the trauma that you describe having on, undergone in your home country that having an affidavit like that greatly increases your chances of being granted asylum uh, quite a bit actually like 90 percent uh, grant rates composed as opposed to maybe like 30 percent so it makes a huge difference so is this the first type of study that the Human Rights Program has worked on? This is, I believe, our first detention-based study. Yeah, we've definitely done other studies um, over the years and have a lot of other ones uh, cooking right now, but this is definitely first in detention. So where does the story begin? How did the study come about? So a resident and I, as part of our global health track, one of the residents opted to go to a family detention center with me and do some work, and this was in... uh, January 2018. So we went to the family detention center in in Texas and did uh, quite a few on-site evaluations, the kinds we would do here. We just did a bunch, just banging them out one after the other. And one thing that struck us, of course, was that this was a family detention center. So this is mothers and kids. Um, 
And it just struck us that that was something that we wanted to draw some attention to. The fact that, of course, the sheer fact that there are kids being detained, right, and what you know many would call being basically imprisoned, um, but also to to explore what's going on with them mentally, because most of the evaluations we did were in their mothers, and we also knew the literature, the scientific literature, there wasn't anything on on this, and so we thought this would be an an enormous contribution to the medical literature, um, and especially for advocacy purposes, depending upon what we found. Priscilla. What is what was the facility like? Um, so the facility is, for lack of a better word, set up like kind of like a concentration camp. Like there are a lot of it's. There's a visitation trailer that we were, you know, able to go through every day, and that was the only location that we were able to to visit. We were prohibited from going anywhere else on the the campus, I guess you can say, but. The way that it was set up was the woman would come in to the visitation trailer to see their lawyers um, or, you know, the other volunteers that were working on their asylum cases. And so that's where we were on a daily basis. Um, So you're in this visitor's trailer, right? You're working with the lawyers. You approach one of these women and you say, hi, I'm so-and-so and and we're doing this study and would you like to participate? Mm -hmm. And I understand you had one of several questionnaires that you would use. Right. So we used two different surveys. The first one was the strengths and difficulties questionnaire, which is a widely used tool to assess um, behavioral. um, General, general mental health symptoms and behaviors and conduct in kids. Right. So we used that and and both of the surveys were in Spanish. Um, And then the other survey that we used was the, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder reaction index um, for children, the UCLA version. So this was a specific survey that uh, measured, you know, the levels of PTSD um, presentation, I guess you could say, that they had um, by way of if they had reoccurring um, nightmares or um, dissociation, certain psychiatric, I guess, symptoms that you would look for in children to assess PTSD. Um, The women were overwhelmingly open to talking about their children and um, their mental health. I think it was, you know, probably a moment of reflection for them, because if you're going through that much trauma and um, distress, it can be really easy to forget that or not notice that your child is quieter than usual or they're having nightmares or maybe they're peeing in the bed a lot and they're not at the age where they should be doing that. So I think that them talking to us or what they expressed that them talking to us was actually um, in some way therapeutic for them. Um, So that was basically how we approached the study. And we did um, a total of 425 of these in eight weeks. (laughs) What was that like? Hard. <laughs> um, difficult, challenging, um, stressful. It felt like such an enormous responsibility as um, I'm a child of immigrants myself. My parents didn't go through what these women and children were going through, but I felt very responsible um, to try my best to show up, even if I didn't feel like it, even if I was tired or burnt out or... Um, dealing with compassion fatigue, which I think both Sarah and I definitely felt. Um, however, it felt like we were doing something important and it, we were doing something necessary. Hmm. I'm wondering if you, any of the people that you met 
kind of stand out in your mind and you could share yes. a little bit about yes one person or one family that you encountered right um there's actually several women that really stick out um and i will always remember their stories um the first woman that i spoke with was younger than than me actually and she had a son um she was from honduras and she fled because of gang retaliation. Her brother did not want to join a gang. And this is a very common um, narrative. A lot of the women were fleeing because of gang violence um, or retaliation for not joining a gang. So her brother refused to join the gang. Um, her brother actually ran away, left the country because the gang was trying to recruit him so much that they were threatening him threatening members of his family so he left the country and she stayed she had a husband and um, her child and she stayed but the gang members knew that that was her brother and because they knew that they ended up actually gang raping her um and that was a very very difficult that was one of my first um, conversations with one of the women and she completely broke down because, you know, she felt like it was her fault and, um, you know, she didn't do anything to stop it. And, you know, we had to let her know that that is not her fault. That was she didn't do anything to ask for that type of um, behavior or treatment. Um, so she left the country with her son in order to to seek asylum. So stories like that, hearing stories like that on a daily basis, definitely it drills into your mind how much these women are. They're not they're not criminals. They're not running out of um, a fear of the police trying to um, arrest them or something like that. They're running for their lives, literally. So I mean, it takes remarkable courage to pick up your life and take an often uncertain migration path, right? It wasn't like they were, you know, going on to Travelocity and booking a flight to the United States, right? They were hauling through often unsafe or unpredictable circumstances to get here. So you're- With their children. With their children, right? And so, I mean, these are people you have to have a lot of respect for, that, you know, that they made a really hard decision, often leaving family behind, sometimes leaving kids behind, the, the decisions as, who's, yeah. as to who to take or not to take. Um, you know, I think um, I, I, it's, uh, I admire the, the people that I met in a very deep way, actually, almost a spiritual way, uh, that what, what they've been through. Um, it's, it's quite striking. Let's talk a little bit about the results. Um, what were some of your findings? Uh, we found high rates of, you know, behavioral and emotional problems in the kids. That's how the strengths and difficulties questionnaire kind of breaks out into broad clusters. Um, and we also found uh, high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Now, these are all according to surveys, right? So they're not definitive diagnoses, but these are very, very suggestive numbers. And... Our unanticipated finding is that when we were there, it was in the heart of the period of child separation. And 
uh, Priscilla and Sarah and Josh were able to interview some mothers who had been separated from the kids and now we're re reunited with them to ask them, interview them, the same exact questionnaires, but now we have detained, previously separated, now reunited kids. And perhaps the most striking of our findings, again, not a surprise, it told us in science what you know in your heart, right, was that the separated detained kids actually had higher rates of emotional problems and PTSD compared to the detained kids who themselves on the whole had higher rates compared to the general population in, in the US. Yeah, how so, much higher? I actually, I confess I don't remember the exact numbers. So I'd have to yeah. look up the numbers for you if you like, I can do that, but. Um, actually I have them. Yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. I can never, the numbers I never stick in my mind. You'll have to correct me if I'm yeah. interpreting them wrong. Right. Um, I have 5% for the general population for emotional and behavioral difficulties and 10%. So double. Mm -hmm. And then this was really startling for me, um, PTSD for teens. Right. It was four times as much. Four times as much. Yeah. yeah. When you got those results, what was your reaction? In some sense, my reaction is like, why did we need to do this study? Right. Mm -hmm. Didn't we all kind of know this already, right? Um, but now here are the hard numbers, right? So, you know, someone's got to act on this. And what's been the response? Well, it's complicated. Colleagues are quite interested, but colleagues were preaching to the choir, right? So, um, you know, the psychiatric community has been quite up in arms about this and being, you know, putting out all sorts of policy statements about how how damaging child separation is in particular, um, we feel fortunate to have the, the data to back it up. The, the complicated reaction has actually been from our legal colleagues um, who were concerned actually about releasing this data. Um, they were concerned about releasing them, I think for a couple of reasons, um, but I think a primary reason is they thought that the data would be misused. That in other words, uh, that people would say, you know, other countries are sending us their crazies. Well, I, I guess startling. It, it is startling and it, it, it speaks to the nature of the political climate right now, I guess, that uh, we would have to kind of feel guilty about publishing our findings. Um, but we do. And I have to say, I, I fear that one day soon I'm going to hear from them that there were repercussions in some way, right? Even for, for the fact of our being there um, or that someone is holding up our, our, our paper and using it as justification for the current hardline immigration policy. Yeah. There was one other piece of the findings that I think is important to highlight, and that's that even though you found these higher levels of mental distress in children in these facilities, you say very explicitly that you couldn't pinpoint the source of that. You couldn't say, for example, that being in detention caused this distress. Um, and you say that uh, for all you know, it could have preceded it. It could have come from things that happened in their home countries and I just think that's important to, to say as well, like what we know and what we don't know based on That's correct. I, I, I mean, I think part of maybe some of the disappointment on the part of our legal colleagues is that we couldn't show that detention caused this. And it wasn't really necessarily designed to do that. Um, we did actually ask about the conditions of detention. Um, so we did do a survey on that. And that was going to be our one attempt to, if we could at least correlate the assessment of the quality and conditions of the detention center and the mental health symptoms in the kid, then we could show some connection between the two. But in fact, our data didn't show that. Um, in, in fact, uh, to be you know open about this, 
the ratings or the quality of detention actually were pretty good. For this particular facility. For this particular facility, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, unique to this facility. It's it's hardly, I think, representative from what I've seen and certainly from what we know from other colleagues. Um, So we couldn't show that. Um, But what we do know is that we're looking at a population of kids who have, you know, are carrying with them a large mental health burden and who, if there are any concerns about what they are going to contribute or if they're going to stay in the United States and what they're going to contribute to society, uh, that we have, I think, a, if not a moral obligation, then it may be a selfish obligation if we want them to be good contributors to our society to correct their trajectory now and not leave these problems untended because you leave them untended, unaddressed, undiagnosed, um, they're going to get worse. Right? As a general rule in the world of mental health, the longer you've got something, the longer you're going to have it, even when you get help, and the more problems it's going to cause. So this is a chance to actually intervene and help them on a humane basis and really help our society. What sorts of uh, care are they receiving? Um, so they have a medical facility on site. They have physicians, um, I believe even dentists, if I'm not mistaken. And there is a behavioral specialist or psychiatrist um, on site as well. However, we don't know anything about their their range of um, training, their specialty, if they're um, trauma-informed um, which I think is really important in this population. Um, so that was something that um, was it still has a huge level of mystery because, yeah, there really was no way to tell. And it's, I think it's, maybe you found it otherwise, but it was not clear to me that, the, that there was a, even a psychiatrist back there. That, right. Uh, there might be a psychologist, which would be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was this sort of whole mysterious thing, like who was behind this door? Right. And um, so what the services are, there's something back there, but we don't know what it is. And uh, there's, I mean, there's such a shortage in this country of child mental health professionals. I would be really surprised if there's any child mental health professional back there. Mm -hmm. When we talk about mental health services for a population like this, what are the sorts of things that in a perfect world you would begin to introduce? Is it sending psychologists in to do one-on-one therapy? Is it... um, well, uh, you know, child and adolescent psychiatry is just a, is a different field than adult psychiatry. I'm an adult psychiatrist. Um, so really what you would have is a child mental health professional who is trauma-trained, or as Priscilla used this term, trauma-informed. That would be the ideal um, to work with this population. And whether it would be come down to individual therapy or group or play or medications, is you know kind of kind of hard to say depending upon the nature of the problem, and, you, and and I'm sorry, and I should add, yes, please. One of the best predictors of how a child is going to do under traumatic circumstances is how their parent is going to do, right? That you know, if you, you know, as the parent goes, so goes the child, um, unless the child has other pre-existing mental health vulnerabilities. So, uh, ideally, you don't just treat the child, but you treat the parent as well. So the picture I'm getting in my head is of a population that is distressed and that would require significant intervention 
Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, and we and we've seen the other end of this. Like I just interviewed a woman uh, from Central America. Did an asylum evaluation a few weeks ago. Here, she's in the community. I think she's. I forget what state she's in, but uh, I did this remotely. Um, but um, and she had been separate. She had been separated from her kids. Now reunited, and she. I was interviewing her, not the kids. But the kids are just, for lack of a better word, just an awful mess psychologically, psychiatrically. They need care, and they just can't find it. I mean, they're they're just trying to get their life together, like where they're going to live, how they're going to make ends meet. And the kids, thankfully, are able to go to their local school, but um, they're not getting the mental health care because they can't afford it, and they don't know how to find, if they even exist, pro bono or discounted um, mental health services for mm -hmm. the kids. So the problem extends out across their trajectory, well beyond detention, but it starts at detention. Mm -hmm. So what does the future look like for these women and children? That's question one and two. What's next for you and your research in this area? What's next for them? Uh, you know, I think there are so many different paths. I think so many of them, if they are, are I mean, if they go, if they're deported, uh, you know, for many of them, it's it, we believe it's a virtual death sentence um, because they were already being threatened in their own country, and then the fact that they tried to flee, um, right, is even more problematic. So they are terrified, literally, for their lives even more than when they fled. For those who stay in our country, you know, there's, it just seems to me there are so many obstacles working against them in terms of the the environment that they find themselves in. Um, so. I, but again, I think, think of these as really resilient people who, who know how to make things work eventually, so I'm hopeful for them. I'm actually very hopeful in, in another respect, even if they don't get access to specialized mental health services, one of the best ways for people to recover from trauma is social support. And um, in communities that we've worked in, I, I've been down in San Antonio, there are just so many wonderful people, religious groups and otherwise, who are, are banding together and providing volunteer services just to help make sure people have clothes and a backpack and a phone to call and know how to get a bus ticket to go to meet their family. And I'd like to think that that social support, and that, that they're hopefully also finding in their, in, the, in their destination communities around the United States, that that, that support um, is going to make an enormous difference in their recovery trajectory, even if they don't get the high-powered mental health services that uh, that I'm, I'm referring to. As for our next steps, and you asked the question about what are our next steps, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I think um, right now we really, rather than doing research, we're just trying to keep up with the, the flow of requests for asylum evaluations. We, we can't keep up. And uh, uh, in terms of those that are referred to us or going out to the detention centers, they're just not enough of us. And so uh, I think we're probably at the moment less focused on the academics and more on getting like, with some trepidation, getting information out there like this, letting people know, um, and uh, on just keeping up with the, with the steady flow of, of asylum seekers. Right. Well, I just want to wrap by thanking you both for doing the study and for your ongoing work. It's been really, really nice speaking with you. Thank you for yeah. being here. Thank you. If you're interested, I highly recommend reading the whole study. It's compact and readable, and it includes links to related studies that will give you a more complete picture of how immigration policy impacts migrants' health. We'll include a link to the study in the show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Katz and Priscilla for making the time to talk to us. Thanks also to the other co-authors of the study, 
Sarah McLean, Joshua Walter, Dr. Kim Baranowski, and Dr. Elizabeth Singer. On the next episode, we're going to hear from a man who fled anti-gay violence in his native Ghana and sought asylum in the United States. But when he got here, he quickly realized that some of his greatest challenges may still lie ahead. It's a resilient story you won't soon forget. Road to Resilience is a production of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. It's produced by Katie Ullman, Nikki Hudson, and me, John Earl. Our executive producers are Dory Clesis and Lucille Lee. From all of us here, thanks for listening. See you next time.